Hello and thank you for joining for episode number 139 of Turkey Book Talk. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul and in this episode we welcome Ahmet Erdi Öztürk. He is Associate Professor and Marie Curie Fellow at Coventry University and London Metropolitan University and he's also the author of Religion, Identity and Power, Turkey and the Balkans in the 21st Century which is published by Edinburgh University Press. This is actually his second appearance on the podcast. He was last on back in September 2018, talking about Turkey's religious affairs director at the Dianet, if you want to go rummaging around the archives for that one. In this episode, we talk about his latest book on Turkey's rising clout in the Balkans, particularly its soft power, its religious and cultural influence, emphasised by President Erdogan's government, and the political and diplomatic effects that that may have down the line. Before we get started with the interview, remember that if you like what we're doing, you can support the podcast by joining as a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Being a Turkey Book Talk member gets you various extras, including an exclusive discount deal of 30% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman History series. Every one of the hundreds of Turkey Ottoman History titles published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury is available to Turkey Book Talk members who use a special code at the checkout that I send out once you sign up and that deal 30% off is valid for all physical books pre-orders and ebooks turkey book talk members also receive transcripts in both english and turkish of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published and you get transcripts of the entire archive of turkey book talk interviews when you sign up including many extra ones not previously published on the podcast members also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself ranging from turkish and international fiction and poetry to history politics and journalism related to the middle east and europe and finally i also send links to articles and other related content in the email that I send out to members with every new episode which is ideal if you want to delve a bit deeper. To become a member just pledge $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more then of course you'll be more than welcome but so long as you pledge $3 or above per episode membership is entirely at your own discretion. There are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now on to our conversation with Ahmet Erdi Öztürk. We talk about the history of Turkey's approach to the Balkans since the fall of the Ottoman Empire, as well as the groundwork that the current government was building on a bit later on. But we began by discussing his research process. His fieldwork included over 120 interviews in Bulgaria, North Macedonia, Albania and Turkey. So I started by asking him about his experiences as a Turkish citizen conducting research on Turkey's influence in the region. Well, I would divide into two different pieces regarding my fieldwork. I mean, conducted fieldwork with the elites, with the political actors, diplomats and religious actors, journalists, academics. It was quite difficult because they saw me as a, quote-unquote, young, foreign country, affiliated PhD student. So in this regard, most of the elites tried to teach me, tried to dictate me what I should write, mostly according to their perspectives. This is the first side. The second side is mostly about the Turkey's creators and enemies in the region, particularly the Gülen movement. It was a little bit risky because, you know, the security issue, the trust issue is always on the table. And I observed the transformation of the Gülen movement's position in the region in 2015, in 2016, 17, 18, and at last 2019. For example, when I spoke, the representative of the Gülen movement in different countries, 
cases. They were much more self-confident in 2015. But for example, in 2019, we had a very small interview in one of the luxury coffee shops in North Macedonia and the coffee shop's toilet, we had an interview. So it was a little bit risky. But I think the interesting part is conducting research with ordinary peoples with the name of Ahmet Öztürk. As a Turkish citizen with the surname Öztürk and the name Ahmet, almost all of my interviews, I mean the ordinary people interviews, categorized me as a devoted Muslim and a Turkish citizen loyal to the Justice and Development Party at the very beginning of the interview process. I was repeatedly gathered with uh, phrases such as we Turks or Muslims like you and me or your government and your leader Erdogan. So being a Turkish citizen and quote-unquote being a Muslim in the eyes of some of my interviews put me a relatively insider position. The fieldwork, the ethnographic fieldwork was very it was like a school for me, I mean, to survive with all of these different balances, with all of these different identities and putting yourself in different positions. I mean, I had an opportunity to have a couple of glasses with some of the, a couple of Raki actually, with some of the Bektashi leaders and representatives. And all, at the same time, I had an opportunity to conduct interviews in Wahhabis in Tirana, in the capital of Albania, in their mosques. So it was, it was a very interesting story and I'm not sure whether I can conduct that kind of extensive fieldwork again because thanks that I was an unknown actor in the Balkans no one no one knows me in the region so it gives me a huge opportunity for this fieldwork adventure I mean every time when I remember my fieldwork I'm enjoying a lot and thanks to that fieldwork I think I'm almost ready to write an article regarding ethnographic fieldwork or conducting research on Muslims because it is a very different and difficult, uh, at the same time, very enjoyable situation for, for me. Now, you mentioned it there. Many supporters of Gulen, Fethullah Gulen, emigrated to the region, particularly after the coup attempt in 2016 in Turkey. Mm-hmm. Just wonder, I mean, how common was it to come across them as you did your research? I mean, your research kind of spanned this period, actually. So there was a shift in their position in Turkey, obviously. And obviously, we also know that there's been lots of abductions of uh, Gulen supporters from the region, sending them back to Turkey. So um, presumably, the situation is obviously not as uh, secure there as it once was. So just bring us up to speed on that. Are those abductions and uh, renditions still going on against Gulen suspects? And uh, a second question, I suppose, more generally, what is the stance of the various countries regarding uh, Gulenists? As far as I could understand from the book, some uh, of these countries are more suspicious than others. First of all, even though it seems that the war between Justice and Development Party or between state and the Gulen movement seems to be over in Turkey, I think it is still alive and it is still an ongoing process in the Balkans. So if I had an opportunity, I really would like to write a book about the Gulenist adventure in the Balkans. But as a Turkish citizen who has been holding a Turkish passport still, I found it it's, it's a little bit risky. For the Gulen movement, what I would say that the region, the Balkans, are quite important because starting from the late or the early 1990s, there has been a very, very close relations and the collaborations and the cooperation between Gulen movement and the AKP in the region. The Gulen movement is is not trying to locate itself in the region, but what they've been doing, mostly they did in 2017 and 2018, they used some of the Balkan countries, particularly North Macedonia, as a trampoline country to jump to the Western countries. They, they want 
one way or another, they try to get the residentship in, for example, in North Macedonia, and then they establish a business with a very small amount of money. And then with these opportunities, they manage to get a free travel to Germany, and then they seek asylum in Germany, in Netherlands, in France, in Sweden. So they use the Balkan countries as a trampoline country. This is the first case. Uh, the second case is that the Balkan countries' relations with Turkey is very much defining the position of the Gulen movement in these countries. For example, in North Macedonia, they have been very difficult positions because even though their Yahya Kemal private elementary and high schools and the Zaman daily is still in a life, they can't get any connection with state, they can't get any support from the local actors, so on and so forth. But in Albania, Turgut Özal schools, some madrasas, some religious schools and some businessmen associations, they are still alive and they are still staying in a very strong position and in a de facto ways, they have been controlling the Albanian, main Albanian Muslim religious institutions. This is mostly because of the Albanians' close relation with European Union, Albanians' close relation with the Western countries and I wouldn't say bad relations with Turkey but some of the equalities between Turkey and Albania didn't let them to do anything against the Gulen movement. But all in all, the Gulen movement is still a very strong component in the region. Their ties, their connections in the region is quite deep and is quite strong because starting from the beginning of 1990s, with the support of the Turkish states, Özal first and then Demirel and then Ecevit and then Erdogan, they managed to establish a very strong ties with the state elites by more than three generations. So it would be very difficult for Turkey's state to cut these ties in the near future. But as I said, this is an ongoing competition or ongoing war between Gülen movement and the Turkey state. Still, Gülen movement has a reasonable, significant leverage in the in the eyes of the local elites, in the eyes of the states, in the Balkan states. There's a general idea, I think, that the Gulen movement spearheaded, really, Turkey's moves into this region, really back in the early 90s. Uh, obviously, it was done sort of in cooperation with the Turkish state. But there's this idea that it was only later that it was followed by more sort of formal state institutions, so the Dianet, Tika, and later the uh, Yunus Emre Institutes, etc. Is that an, an accurate understanding of the chronology of, of how things happened? Not 100%. Actually, the kickoff point of this book is regarding one popular academic and semi-academic connotation, which is called Turkey is back. And some claim that the policies of the AKP government and the Turkey has reached its peak points and the Turkey is back in the region as an influential, not outsider, but I would say an international actor. This is not very true, actually. As Dimitar Bechev mentions most of his books and his articles, Turkey has always been in the region uh, via different institutions why different opportunities, why different diplomatic ties. But starting from late 1980s, within the with the with the process of the internationalization of the Gulen movement and the support of Özal, they managed to open their first schools in Albania. 
And it continued to like that in the first half of 1990s. But what happened with the 28 February process in Turkey? There was a gap regarding the support of the Turkish state to the Gilan movements in the region. The gap is between 1997 to 2002. But after 2002, particularly after 2007, these two ambitious, strong structures, Justice and Development Party and the Gilan movement, worked quite collaboratively in the region. I mean, I talk a couple of ambassadors. These are current and former ambassadors of Turkey in the region. I learned that they worked like a unified structure with two different sides. For example, while the Gilan movement has been organizing the public diplomacy or the marketing or the visibility strategies of Turkey within the civil society, within the education field, within the business sector. At the same time, Turkey's opened their way by using their diplomatic power, their diplomatic impact. So they worked very closely until the beginning of, I would say, 2014. But after 2014, you know that the war is started. I'm, I'm, I'm insisting to use war because it's, it is a war. They would like to exterminate each other. But this relation was very close and very much interest-based in the region, particularly between 2007 to 2000, early 2014. So the book focuses obviously mostly on the current era, the, the era of the uh, AKP mm-hmm. and its real expansion of influence in the Balkans in recent years. But could you talk also about the extent to which the AKP has been building really on foundations that were laid by previous governments? Uh, so what are the continuities there? It's really striking that uh, Tika, the Dianet, and actually local municipalities all planted roots in the Balkans in the 1990s. But you describe that as a preliminary phase, as Turkey had relatively limited state capacity during this period. So just talk about those continuities between that era of the 1990s when the foundations were laid and today when the uh, ambitions are, are much more extensive. Whenever I try to talk with the actors, whenever I try to talk with the local actors, they always mention Mustafa Kemal Atatürk, obviously, and they also mention Turgut Özal process. Özal, I mean, whether you are a fan of his policies or not, he might be one of the first Turkish political actor who can manage to understand the needs and the nature of the Balkans. He not only used the diplomatic resources, he also used the semi-diplomatic actors, such as religious communities, such as some of the state institutions, so on and so forth. And in 90s, in the beginning of the 90s, despite of Turkey's fragile economic conditions, I mean, the problematic democratic situations and the instability within the domestic politics, Turkey used extensively in his transnational apparatuses. For example, Dianet, Presidency of Turkey's Religious Affairs, is, is invited by three different Balkan countries, Albania, North Macedonia, and Bulgaria, within the second half of 1990s. This is the first time one transnational state apparatus of Turkey started to be active in the region. So yes, there is a continuity. And beyond that, today we would like to scrutinize the activities of Justice and Development Party in the region. We should understand that. 
this relation hasn't been started in 2002. But what is true that starting Erdogan's mayorship process, there has been always a big relation with the Balkans. And these relations are quite deep. For example, right now, since, if I'm not mistaken, since 2008, Erdogan has been working one particular advisor regarding the Balkan issues. His name is Sabri Demir, getting education in an Albania, in North Macedonia. He can speak all the regional languages and he knows the region very well. So Turkey's transformation has been showing itself in, in a very different ways in, in the region. Now, going back to those earlier eras, one thing that comes through in the book is that the Turgut Özal era mm-hmm. is key, really. Uh, so he was prime minister for much of the 1980s and he was president when the uh, Soviet Union collapsed. And he was very keen on Turkey's uh, economic integration with the Balkans. And he sometimes placed an Islamic emphasis on this project. But of course, he was also keen on closer ties between Turkey and the West. Mm-hmm. So what was the significance of the Özal era in terms of Turkey's outreach into the Balkans? I was quite lucky while conducting research, trying to uh, understand the Özal's area in the region. First of all, I had a chance to talk with Cengiz Chandar, who was the private advisor of Turgut Özal during in that region and who traveled a lot uh, with and without Özal to the region. And he, he knows the, every single actor and every single critical junction in this process. The second thing is that I managed to reach Mihail Ivanov, who is one of the chief advisors on the mine minority rights to the Bulgarian president Jelen Jelalev, just right after the Bulgarian uh, communist process. And they explained me very well to Özal period. And beyond that, whenever you talk with relatively elderly people in the region, particularly the elderly religious leaders in the region, they saw as Özal as the first Turkish leader who managed to understand the real needs and the real demands of the Balkan people from Turkey. Özal thought that Turkey should have different faces, different identities and different activities in its foreign policy. While Özal, for example, using his neoliberal capitalist free market based economic interests and the economic desires, while he was creating relations with Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher in the Balkans, he combined this economic interest with the cultural and the religious orient with a little bit of an history source on it. For example, the Bulgarian migrants or the Muslim rights in Albania, the the Muslim situation in the Serbian Sanjak region is first mentioned during the Özal period and this was very important for the ordinary Balkan people because they realized that there is one leader in Turkey which might be one of the motherland for the Muslim components in the Balkan can easily hear their voices and he managed to realize and support them as much as he can do. This was very essential for the Balkan Balkans Muslim components. This was very important. And what I can say as well for this Özal period, Özal is the first political actor who tried to support the Gülen movement and the other religious communities in the region. That is why the Gülen schools in Albania, Gülen schools name in Albania is the Tur- Turgut Özal schools. 
So his letters, his supports, his initiatives, personal diplomatic activities of Özal is the first attempt for Turkey to be the real impactful and the bold actor in the region. That is why in the book I use the Özal's area as a nascent neo-Ottomanism in the region because we talked a lot about Davutoğlu's neo-Ottomanism in the region. We talked about Davutoğlu's impact. We talked about Erdogan's ethno-nationalist history-based and very, very religious-oriented policies in the region. But if you would like to see the first components of all of these activities, we should go and scrutinize the period of Özal. I wouldn't say it is the kickoff point for the Turkish state to be inactive in the region, but it is a, one of the biggest turning points and the critical junction for Turkey's activities, Turkey's prisons. Without scrutinizing Özal's period, it would be very difficult to understand the contemporary Turkish-Balkan relations. And, of course, during Özal's period in office uh, in the 80s, there was a, a wave of migration from Bulgaria to Turkey. Uh, and this was a huge issue at the time, hundreds of thousands of people moving from Bulgaria to Turkey. And that was a continuation, really, of a, of a historic process. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, throughout the 20th century, there was this, there were waves and waves of migrations from different countries of the Balkans, from the late Ottoman era through to the Republican era, and then, you know, through the decades. So this is also a constant in in the relationship between Turkey and, and the Balkans. This these waves of migration from from one direction to the other, and also more recently, perhaps waves of migration going from Turkey to to the Balkans. So there's a kind of double movement there. Uh, yes, it's a it's a it's a double movement, and also I mean, still when you talk with the ordinary people, when you talk with the Turkish or the Muslim communities representatives in the region, they see Özal as a legendary savior for the for the region, not because of Özal's pretty religion oriented discourse, but as you mentioned, the migration and the the issues in the in the late 1980s, you can't believe that what kind of sad, very sad stories that I heard while I was conducting fieldwork in Bulgaria. And at the the end of all of these sad stories, they ended up with with a very wet eyes and they started to mention about Özal and how he tried to save their ancestors, their fathers, their mothers, their grandfathers, grandmoms, to save from the very brutal, repressive fascist regime. These were their, their sentences. Yeah. Thinking about how the historic perspectives have, have changed over time, I think I often think it's ironic that uh, today the Balkans is often seen as an arena for these mm-hmm. pioneering religious initiatives, flexing Turkey's you know religious soft power muscles. But um, when you take a historic perspective, you know, in the Ottoman era, the Balkan lands were often seen as the kind of vanguard of modernity, nationalism and mm-hmm. progressive ideas from Europe, quite distant from traditional religious ones. And it was often the you know young officers from the Balkans who brought those ideas over mm-hmm. to Istanbul. So the kind of Balkans in the imagination in that era was completely different to, to what we think about it being today. During during my research period, what I found that Eric Zanzukar also mentioned that in the first and the second parliaments of the Republic of Turkey, actually beyond the foundation of the Republic, more than 50% of the representatives in the parliament, in the National Assembly, uh, is coming from the Balkans and their homelands, their home cities, their, their uh, birthplaces 
we're not in the territories of the contemporary Turkey right now. And in the book, I mentioned about Halil Inalcık, how he categorized the Ottomans as a Balkanic empire and how the empire reached its empire qualities and the qualifications while joining to the Balkans and the importance of the Balkans for the Turkish Enlightenment, so on and so forth. Yes, the Balkans were very important for the Ottoman Empire, but at the same time, it was very important for the early Republican period. But at the same time, the Balkans has changed a lot. And Turkey couldn't manage to capture that transformation until Özal process. And after that, with the Özal process and then 1990s and then with the beginning of the new millennium, Balkans became one of the main competition area, competition geography for external international actors, such as currently there are multi-level competitions in the region in terms of religion, in terms of economy, in terms of politics between Russia Turkey and European Union. In terms of economy, there is another competition between European Union, United States, United Kingdom, Russia, China and Turkey. Regarding religion, what we saw that there is also a rivalry between Iran, Saudi Arabia and Turkey who gonna be the main representatives of the Muslims within the region. So Turkey and the Balkans or the Turkey's activities in the Balkans is a very complicated issue and it will be very difficult to read all the process with continuations. So let's talk about uh, soft power. Um, mm-hmm. So thinking about TV series, tourism, etc. Obviously, you know, TV series, these historical TV series from Turkey and their global popularity is a bit of a tired subject by now. But it really, I don't think, can be underestimated for forging those emotional global bonds between Turkey and other Muslim communities elsewhere and non-Muslim communities in some senses, in some cases. So what did you find out about how various Turkish TV serials, particularly the historical serials that have become wildly popular, how have these resonated in the Balkans specifically? Every single corner in the Balkans, even in the one of the Western, I mean, the European Union, Slovenia, in Ljubljana, you can easily see all of these soap operas, TV series, the books, all other actors are quite popular in the, in the region. But I think we are exaggerating a little bit of the impact of all of these normative parts of the soft power. In the book, I divided soft power into two different categories or two different sides. One is the normative soft power. The other one is the material soft power. Normative and material soft powers. That is why, I, despite of every single claim in the literature, I define Turkey as an ambivalent soft power because on the one hand, we saw very positive, very active and very smooth normative soft power components of Turkey. And then we saw very important material soft powers, but the intersectionality between these two is quite complicated. Therefore, it's better for us to define Turkey as an ambivalent soft power in the region. Now, your book is obviously mostly about religion, religious soft power, but there's been a shift recently in the political atmosphere in Turkey. At the top of the Turkish state, there's been much more emphasis on Turkish nationalism rather mm-hmm. than just religion, a kind of Eurasianist flavored Islamism rather than a more Ummah based Islamism, to put it crudely. Mm-hmm. The focus shifting from the Middle East to Central Asia, again, to put it rather crudely. So how is that changing the perceptions of Turkey in the Balkans? 
the title of the book as you know religion identity and power the main title of the book is that and it's scrutinizing turkey's increasingly authoritarian authoritarian reactive domestic and reactive foreign policy overlaid with islam based discourse how islam can establish a collaboration with ethno nationalism or illiberalism at the same time and how one particular can, country can canalize all of this situation to another region. Religion and ethno-nationalist attitudes have the capacity to shape the politics and power relations as well as the state's main core identity. So in the book, I claim that the establishment and the transformation processes of the state identity start from a domestic level. And within this transformation, different actors, different components are quite important. And every single critical junction, every single domestic struggles among different ideological camps are quite important and at the same time different ideological camps collaborations are quite important neither Atatürk nor Özal Erdoğan none of the Turkish leaders is sitting in a power chair alone even if they capture the parliaments with a single party they manage to collect different actors different power groups for the same desires While I was conducting my research, the Justice and Development Party has been divorcing with the Gülen movement and creating a different coalition with National Election Party, MHP, and Eurasianists. Eurasianist impact is still quite important to understand the militarization of foreign policy, to understand the reactive or I would say aggressive foreign policy attitudes of Turkish foreign policy. But as I said, still in the Balkans, the religion and the ethnic components are much more important. With the impact of the Euro-Asians, there is an overdose use of nationalism and overdose use of the military aspects of the foreign policy. But these military aspects hasn't got that much direct relations to the Muslim components or the Turkey components in the Balkans. This is something quite different. Yes, we know that there is a huge security and military agreements between Serbia, Albania, North Macedonia, Bulgaria and Turkey. But this is not directly affecting the daily life and the daily perceptions of the ordinary Balkan citizens. Yes, we shouldn't underestimate the Eurasianist impact on Turkish foreign policy. They are the one of the main components of the Turkish state's identity right now. They are the masterminds of the Eastern Mediterranean policies, North African policies of Turkey. But as I said, since the beginning of Özal process, Turkey has different identities, different faces, and the face that has been looking to the Balkans has much more religion-oriented than nationalism. Indeed, what is the difference between nationalism and religion in the Turkish context? It is a very big question and we should speak hours and hours regarding that difference or that commonalities. Yeah, I think there's probably many more commonalities than differences, definitely, as you definitely. say. Um, just finally, I wonder if we could talk about how many of the governments in these countries have many concerns about Ankara interfering in their internal political affairs. And there's been quite a bit of talk about mm-hmm. Turkey setting up and supporting political parties to represent Turkish or Muslim communities in these various countries. Perhaps the most advanced party endeavour on these lines mm-hmm. is uh, Dost in oh, Bulgaria. Yeah. Could you just talk finally about the general situation with these efforts across all the regional countries? Where do they stand? Have they made progress and what's the latest with them? 
well, I mean, I wouldn't say they progress, but they are still alive. And the Dost is the one of the most famous one. But there are some in Albania, there are some in North Macedonia, and they've been collaborating each other. It is super difficult to conduct research regarding that issues in the Balkans because everything is based on conspiracies and rumors and many different gossips. What we know that Turkey managed to divide into two pieces the main umbrella Turkic originated political parties in Bulgaria. Turkey has been supporting three different political structures in North Macedonia and Turkey has been supporting one particular structure in Albania with the collaboration with other Muslim groups. So in this regard, Turkey trying to be a visible actor in the internal politics of these countries because Turkey isn't seeing itself as an international or an outsider actor. Turkey is seeing itself as a, not a big brother, I would say as a father of the land. So this is quite problematic because all of these, in terms of population, in terms of geography, tiny, but very brave Balkan countries. Sovereignty is a very big issue and Turkey has been targeting their sovereignties via their domestic political arenas. So this is one of the issues that makes Turkey one of the ambivalent structures in the region because supporting Muslims, doing many different investments or using normative aspects of soft power, they're all fine for the Balkan individuals, Balkan elites. But if you are targeting their sovereignty, their independence, directly or indirectly, you will be the, one of the main problem makers. But from the eyes, from the Ankara, I think the current Erdogan's regime, the policymakers, think that whatever they can do in the region, they would very much welcomed by the Balkan elites. But no, it is not true. It will create many big question marks. I mean, the overdose use of Islam, overdose use of nationalism, and involving the domestic politics via dividing political parties or creating new ones is one of the biggest problems of the region. But right now, Turkey doing some cold-on-cold dangerous issues in the region, such as touching their very fragile and complicated domestic political issues. And I'm not sure, yes, Turkey knows the region very well, but knowing every single country's domestic political dynamics would be quite difficult for an external, for an, for an international country. That was Ahmet Erdi Özsuk. Many thanks to him for joining for this episode number 139. Before we finish, let me just flag up something, turkeybooktalk.com. It's our updated website with details of all episodes and relevant links. I finally got round to sorting that out, giving Turkey Book Talk its own dedicated URL. So do check it out, save it in your bookmarks, tell friends, etc, etc, turkeybooktalk.com. Remember, if you enjoy Turkey Book Talk, you can join as a member to support it. Membership pays for things like the new website and membership also gets you that 30% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just pledge $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account. Also do rate or review Turkey Book Talk on whatever podcast platform you use. Follow via Twitter or like our Facebook page. And I do enjoy hearing from listeners. So please send any recommendations, feedback or abuse to William John Armstrong at gmail.com.
And finally, don't forget to check out Friends of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is a weekly email newsletter put together by journalists Razier Akkoc and Diego Cupolo, a package bringing together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some excellent puns. Just go to turkeyrecap.com to find out how to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.